This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome back to the show. Once again, I am your host, Avery Kreiwold, with Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. Now, I hope that most people understand the basic concept of recycling, taking a material or a product that can no longer be used as intended and putting it through processes that allow it to be reused or used again in a different form. But there is still a lack of understanding on how that actually works and how effective it really is. That's what I'm going to go into today with Carlene Spellhog from Amp Robotics. I hope this episode will give you a better idea of how recycling works and how we can use artificial intelligence and robotics to improve that system. Please enjoy. Welcome to the show, Carlene Spellhog. You're from Amp Robotics, which is an American company working to make materials recycling easier and more efficient using the powerful duo of artificial intelligence and robotics. You use your recycling technology on everything from electronics to building demolitions and kind of everything in between those two. So what else can you tell me about Amp's mission and their process? Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. Um, As you mentioned, um, AMP is an AI and robotics company. We're working to maximize the volume and quantity of recycled feedstock through data automation and infrastructure innovation. And our mission is to enable a world without waste. That's a pretty great mission to have. Why is materials recycling this thing that you're focusing on? Why is that so important to us? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of reasons recycling is, uh, you know, really important. Um, You know, it's everything from helping to divert materials from landfills, incinerators and waterways and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you know, but it also bolsters economic security by helping us tap a domestic source of materials, supports manufacturing and conserves natural resources. So I think people really tend to think about recycling purely in environmental terms, which don't get me wrong, is, is very important. But kind of, as I mentioned, it also plays a key economic role in terms of job creation and supply chain continuity. I did pull some example stats from um, ISRI, which is the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries, which is a trade association for the scrap recycling industry. So I just thought these would be helpful for illustrating some of the impact that recycling has. For instance, more than 75% of U.S. paper mills depend on recovered fiber. So boxed goods that are delivered to homes by the Postal Service, by Amazon, and other delivery companies rely on this recycled content. I mean, 70% of the steel that the U.S. produces is made from scrap. So your car, your motorcycle, and the building that you work in are made from recycled steel, most likely. And then things like, you know, more than half of the materials that go into making toilet paper and facial tissue also comes from recycled paper. And then the people and firms that purchase, process, and broker old materials to be manufactured into new products in America provide more than 500 U.S. jobs and generate more than 100 billion annually in economic activity. So it really does, it really does have, you know, impacts in a lot of different areas. It's a part of everything and it's very widespread in its reach. This is something that I think everyone is a little bit undereducated on. 
We're just told to throw some things into the garbage can, and they're garbage, and some things into the blue bin, and they're recycling, but we don't really know what the difference is there. They could be going to the same place for all we know. So what really is the difference between what's happening to what we throw into the garbage and what's going into our blue bins? Yeah, that's a good point. I think um, what you're also pointing to is just there's a lot of lack of consistency when it comes to what's considered recyclable in um, you know different communities and different municipalities and state to state and country to country. So it does create a lot of um, just confusion among consumers about kind of where to put what. I would say the primary difference between, you know, what you, what you can recycle and what you can't recycle is, you know, whether there's a way to reuse that material, whether there's an end market for that material. So I think what's really interesting is, you know, you see stats like there's more than $200 billion worth of material annually that goes unrecovered. And that's, that's so much, that's so much value that's being lost. But the reason it's being lost is because the cost of sorting it out erodes its value, costs more to sort it than, than, you know, you would recover from it. So with technology like ours, by bringing down the cost of sorting, we make it more economically viable to go capture that material versus landfilling it. Right now, just for purely economic reasons, you know, it's cheaper to landfill material than it is to sort it out. Yeah, it kind of ties into what you guys are working on. And that important piece of it is that even if it's better for the environment and we know that, it still has to be relatively economic in order for people to actually do that. Right. There has to be someone that wants to buy the material. You know, there are some consumer packaged goods companies and brands that really are, you know, stepping up and um, deciding to produce their packaging with more recycled content. But right now that's still kind of happening, at least in the U.S., on, you know, a more voluntary basis. There's no mandate that, um, you know, companies have to use recycled content. So when they don't have to do that, if it's just kind of on them to do the right thing, there's only so much progress we can make. You mentioned that obviously recycling is sometimes expensive, and that's why we're losing all of this material and money every year into these textiles and these products that are just being lost into landfills or into ocean garbage or anything like that. So what is the actual process of recycling and like, where is that cost coming in? Because I think people see the front end of it. You get a product, you strip it down to its basics as much as you can, you know, like take a label off a metal or glass can, and then you throw it in a bin and it gets taken away, but then it disappears. You don't worry about it anymore. So what's kind of the back half of that? Yeah, well, so maybe just to start at the front end, you know, there's several different methods for collecting recyclables. You know, it's curbside collection, there's drop-off centers, deposit or refund programs. And so I think most of us are familiar with the blue bins, like you said, where we can toss our recyclables and set them out for pickup on a periodic basis. And then after collection, recyclables are sent to what's called a materials recovery facility or MRF to be sorted, cleaned and processed, where they become the feedstock for manufacturing products. This is a very important point. If you were like me, you probably thought that when the big truck takes away your glass and metal and paper, it's taking it somewhere where they melt it down or remold it or repaper it, and then off it goes. That's not actually the case. Instead, it's sent to these material recovery facilities, also called MRFs, where the materials are sorted through by hand and machine. Plastics are packaged with plastics and glass with glass, and then they're shipped out for someone else to deal with how to actually make them into something new. There are also usually two different types. 
dirty MRFs, which separate recyclables from garbage, and clean MRFs, which accept only recyclables from sources that solely contain recyclables. This is something like your blue bin or if you take your recycling to a recycling depot. So then, like I said, recyclables are bought and sold just like raw materials would be. And then the prices go up and down depending on supply and demand in the United States and elsewhere. And so in terms of why that needs improving, you know, just looking at the U.S., for example, there's many thousands of municipal recycling programs nationwide that are collecting the material that we all generate. Between the collection and the actual recycling of commodities, there's really a small number of these MRFs, which renders these facilities centralized material hubs. And so a major challenge is that MRFs incur high costs when they attempt to sort out commodities that continue to evolve with complex floor form factors and material compositions and new packaging that's kind of constantly being introduced into the stream. That was kind of a lot of words all at once. So let me sum it up a bit. When MRFs are sorting through things like plastics, which are constantly changing shape, color, size, chemistry, and even recyclability, they have two choices in order to keep up both of which cost them money. The first option is to hire more manual labor to analyze and manually sort materials or constantly update a local system that can do the analysis and sorting, which costs time, manpower, and expertise to keep that system running. These factors especially point quite specifically to artificial intelligence as a solution, which, don't worry, we'll get into it a bit later. So today's MRFs require a tremendous amount of manual labor, and they have problems staying fully staffed, which means that they may incur high residue loss and continuous challenges to ensure high bail quality. So if they can't produce material, you know, recycled material at a high quality, then, you know, it's not going to be bought back to be made into new packaging. And so all in all, the value of these scrap commodities then are eroded by the high cost of sorting. And that's what we're trying to tackle with our technology. So it's kind of that combination between a lack of actual facilities that are sorting these things once they get collected from the consumer, and then at those facilities themselves, there's a lack of manpower and a lack of efficiency. Just to kind of put a finer point on the staffing part of it, I mean, these facilities are really, you know, not desirable work environments. They can be really hot in the summer. It can be really cold in the winter. The legacy process has been just people, you know, standing at a conveyor belt, picking material, you know, for eight hours at a time. So it's very repetitive, you know, it's dirty, dull, and dangerous, which is kind of the type of job that's really ripe for automation. You know, I think robots coming into industries kind of get painted with one broad brushstroke about it being, you know, a bad thing for humans. But I think we feel pretty comfortable saying that one of our robots has never taken a job from a human. Really, you know, we just are kind of bridging the gap between you know, the labor challenges that these companies are facing because they can't be fully staffed. And then, like you said, that means they can't recover as much material. And so with automation, you can be fully staffed and you can also run maybe a second shift so you can recover more material. So it really is kind of a path to operational continuity, especially with COVID in the last year when there was a lot of concern about social distancing and, um, you know, people were out sick or, you know, had to take care of loved ones. You know, these robots, we, you know, we really kind of saw the impact being accelerated because, you know, people saw firsthand, you know, this was kind of a path to operational existence for a lot of these facilities. Well, thanks for making that point, because I think it is a very important point to make. When we think about automation, a lot of the time it goes to, ah, robots are going to take our jobs, like don't allow them into the industry. 
but it's very important to see that at least in the case of AMP, and maybe not all the time, but in the case of AMP, it's supplementary. It's on top of what's already there. It's not taking anyone's jobs, right? Really, you know, for the people that these facilities are able to um, retain, you know, that aren't just temporary um, labor. I mean, there's even prison labor in some cases, which obviously is not a sustainable type of workforce. But for employees that facilities are able to retain, they can be upskilled into more, um, you know, technical roles working to like help maintain the robots, you know, doing more with kind of operations and management of the facility as opposed to just sorting. So it's, it's a better kind of use and, you know, career development path for them as well. Yeah, there is that path for development where in just the manual labor, it's kind of a static job. So what are the most important components of AMP's system? What are the things that are making it more efficient and how is that actually working? I think with this technology, it's always cool to be able to see it in person. So I'd encourage anyone who's interested to visit our website where we have different videos. But just to explain it, without the aid of visuals right now, you know, there really are three components to the system. And you can think of them as the eyes, the brain, and the arms. So there's a, there's a camera or the eyes that um, kind of is situated above the conveyor belt, and it records material as it comes down the belt uh, to be picked and sorted. And then there's the brain, which is our artificial intelligence platform. And that converts all of the video camera's images into data, capturing and then categorizing everything that it recognizes. We equate that to very similar to the way a human eye would work. So basically, we're able to recognize and distinguish anything that a human could. And then um, our software guides the robotic arms to then pick and place the material to be recovered. But then all of this happens at you know superhuman speeds, so about twice the pace that a human could sort, about 80 pieces of material a minute with consistent accuracy and precision. So it's really the artificial intelligence that's the piece that's the most transformational for the industry. That's our core technology and our enabling technology and, you know, where we see more applications in the future. Seems like it's pretty well developed. This is not something that's just a startup. This is something that's been looked at and researched for a long time. Is there anyone that's actually done this before or are you guys kind of the first? Because I've never heard about anything like this before. Well, there are um, you know, other technologies that are you know, aimed at improving productivity and efficiency in the industry. There's technology like optical sorters, which is kind of similar. But like I said, our AI is really, that's what we call it the brain, because it, like, that's proprietary to us. And that's what we think kind of gives us our edge with this technology. So it has this you know, unlimited ability to learn new types of packaging. And I think that's kind of what makes it so powerful. It, um, the more robots we deploy, you know, it has that networked intelligence where it can learn anything that it comes across. And then that ability to recognize and pick that type of material can be turned on and off at different locations. That has a couple different benefits. It gives facilities the ability to kind of adapt quickly to capture in-demand commodities. So like last year when the Amazon effect, as it was called, when everyone was ordering things at home, when restaurants were closed and people weren't going to stores, facilities could, you know, make sure that they're capturing as much paper as possible so that, um, you know, they could resell it back to those paper mills to be made into new packaging. And then, you know, that increases revenue for them. RAI gives facilities a lot of flexibility in deciding what they want to sort and, you know, the ability to turn it on and off quickly. There's not a lot of kind of process that goes into that. Right. Yeah. And AI is one thing that's kind of, it's coming right now, like it's continually being developed faster and faster across the world. And I think it's important to note that your AI is web-based so that all of your individual facilities can be based off of this AI, if I'm getting that right. 
that it can learn from all these different places and then compile that knowledge and then use it in every single facility. Clarity is a little bit of a, it's a newer product that we just actually launched earlier this year, but that's a web-based data portal that provides material characterization in real time and performance measurement metrics throughout key process stages of, of a sorting operation. It basically services data on the recyclables that are captured and missed during different stages of the process, and then also helps to confirm the composition of recovered material bales that are destined for resale to end markets. Not to be confused with anything else, we also have what's kind of our standalone vision system. So it's basically the, it's just the cameras without the robotic arms. So it's a standalone modular enclosure that can be dropped into a facility's existing operation to collect data at specific points of the operation. So hopefully I didn't totally confuse you. (laughs) Data transparency has been a longstanding challenge in the industry. You don't really know what's coming in or going out. You just have these bales that you're telling buyers of the material that is X amount pure. The issue of purity has kind of been brought into sharper focus in the last couple of years. I don't know if you're familiar with what's called China's National Sword Policy. We used to ship all of our recyclables to China, and basically we outsourced the sorting problem to them. They would buy the material and it didn't matter how pure it was. But once that stopped, I think it was in 2018, we had to find domestic markets for those materials. And nobody wants to buy something if it's not going to be at a very high purity that you know can actually be made into the, into the new products and packaging that we've been talking about. So that's kind of where that need for better quality, which is based on better data, kind of came into sharp focus. There was actually a really good episode from a podcast called 99% Invisible on that China's national sword policy. So I'll put that in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. It's a really interesting episode to see how that all went down. Yeah, we love that. We love that podcast. So great idea. So how does AMP systems actually integrate with these MRFs? You mentioned that the vision system is drop-in, like you can put it wherever. Is that the same with your Cortex as well? Or is it kind of a bit more intensive to get that established? No, it really is a um, relatively quick process, or I think quicker than people would assume given the type of technology it is. It is designed to drop in quickly, you know, even over a weekend to eliminate the need for downtime or retrofitting because, you know, having continuous operations is so critical for these recycling facilities. Kind of then to build on what we do for existing operations, uh, we're also piloting secondary sortation facilities, which is an infrastructure model that can more economically process and aggregate small volumes of difficult to recycle material like mixed plastics, paper and metals that are sourced from the residue supplied by primary MRFs. So this creates or helps create new revenue streams for material that would otherwise cost these, these MRFs to dispose of and also helps to address the millions of tons of recyclables and material feedstock that's lost to landfill despite the demand from consumer packaged goods companies and brand owners for recycled content. That's kind of a newer newer part of our business that's just just getting started, but I think has a lot of potential to also address what I mentioned earlier about kind of the dispersion of materials recovery facilities by maybe giving recycling access to areas that have maybe historically been more underserved. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't realize that before. So I would say, and you can tell me if you agree with this kind of analogy, but that seems like it's almost like a second filter kind of thing. Goes through the MRF where it can use the AMP robotics systems to improve its efficiency and accuracy. And then the waste from those MRFs that can still be recycled 
goes through basically that process again to get even more materials out of that. Is that about right? That's exactly right. Like you might find with plastics, for instance, that a facility is only sorting, you know, your number one plastic, which is kind of the PETs, like your water bottles, or, you know, it's the thinner plastic that a lot of our everyday items um, are packaged in, or um, number two plastic or HDPE, which is like your detergent bottles, that kind of thing. So it might only be feasible for a, a particular MRF to sort those two types of plastics, and they just let everything three through seven go through. But if we were able to buy that material from them and then sort it with our AI-enabled secondary sortation model, you know, we can recover more material, sell it to end markets. The MRF profits from selling the material to us and that material, they don't have to pay to get rid of it. And, you know, that material gets recycled and reused. So kind of win-win for everyone. Yeah, you mentioned that sometimes they let three through seven go. That is an incredible amount of plastic that consumers who are doing the sorting or recycling in their own homes are under the assumption that that's getting recycled. That's really unfortunate that when you look at the numbers of what's actually being recycled, which I don't have up right now, it's pretty low compared to what you would actually think it is. That podcast episode with 99% Invisible talked about it a bit. And there's an episode from How to Save a Planet that talks about it a bunch more. I'll put in the show notes as well. It is that transparency that AMP is working on that's very important because right now there isn't a lot of transparency and a lot of the plastics, especially that we think are getting recycled, actually aren't. You know, I think everyone sees the chasing arrows symbol. And, you know, if if you throw it into a recycling bin, you feel good about it because, you know, you think you're doing your part. But like I said, there's so much more than just kind of the consumer action that drives, you know, actual recycling. And, you know, important point, recyclable does not mean recycled. That's an important distinction. And you said you didn't have the numbers in front of you, but I think we're only around 9% of plastics get recycled. Plastic is not a material that decomposes the way maybe some other materials do. So, Every piece of plastic that's been created is is still with us. And so it's kind of mind-boggling to try to wrap your head around what that actually means in terms of how much material is just out there that, you know, if we can't find a better way to repurpose and reuse it, you know, it's just going to be invading our lives in more ways than it already has. And it's good to see that AMP is working on that problem because it's a very essential problem for landfills, which a problem for leaching chemicals and actually emitting greenhouse gases themselves might not know that, but they do. And ocean waste, microplastics in the ocean. Microplastics are an issue that you may have heard of or maybe not, but I'm willing to bet that you aren't confident in saying exactly what they are. Microplastics are actually just teeny tiny pieces of plastic. And more than a third of microplastics around come from consumer products like clothing being washed or anything else that you throw out that eventually ends up in either the ocean or landfills and leak their plastics into those oceans or landfills. The rest actually comes from a combination of tires and erosion of buildings and cities, which was a bit of a surprise for me. These microplastics, which are again just tiny pieces of plastic that you can't even see, are still being studied for their impact on human and animal health, but it seems clear to me, at least, that drinking tiny particles of plastics has got to be unhealthy in some way. And we do know that when marine animals especially consume plastics day in and day out, every day, it can build up and lead to death, which is not something that we want humans to be facing. 
but it could be a possibility if these microplastics are building up in our water systems and even our food systems in agriculture. All of these plastics are extremely harmful to the environment and human health if they can get into human systems as well, like our water systems. We just need to be aware that putting something in a blue bin doesn't mean that it's taken care of. We've gone over it a bit, the accuracy, efficiency, everything like that. Is there anything else that makes AMP systems different and better than what's out there right now? Yeah, I mean, I think like you said, those, you know, the accuracy and breadth of material categories are, I think, the biggest differentiators and unlimited capacity to learn. So, you know, whether it's a new material type, a new brand label, a new packaging format, just that constant improvement and getting smarter as our network of installation expands. Our neural network operates with millions of parameters compared with a fraction of that for competing systems. So gives you a great degree of specificity. So if you wanted to know how many Starbucks cups were in a, in a material stream or how many Pepsi bottles as opposed to Coke bottles, you know, there, it's that level of granularity, which is pretty unique. That's kind of the thing that AMP is focusing on, right? The AI piece of it, which is really fascinating stuff. And I don't think we really have time to go into exactly what AI is, maybe another time, because it's a very wide uh, topic and very complicated topic. But it's good to see a company like AMP making good use of this that's being developed right now. I think you're right. I mean, AI is kind of a buzzword, but I think there are really a lot of really practical real world applications for it. And you know, even a company like AMP that's only been around since 2014, full scale commercial production, we are a startup, but you know, <laughs> we've got 125 systems out there and, you know, growing quickly, you know, just raised a series B at the beginning of this year. That's really kind of propelling our growth, you know, into this year and beyond. So we're really excited about everything that's to come. Like you wouldn't think that a recycling system, like a recycling company would be able to prosper as much as you guys are. But it's really impressive to see with your use of robotics and AI that it's going so well, it's becoming a success story, which is good to motivate other companies who want to do the same. Absolutely. It's an exciting time to be working at this company. And I think um, exciting time for recycling in general, you, know, you, see, you see a lot of headlines that paint doomsday scenarios about all the ways recycling is broken. And I think We've gone over a lot of the ways that you know, it is challenged and there are some some known issues that you know have plagued the industry that we're working to address. But I think technology is bringing a lot of improvements to the space, um, not just what we're doing, but we're excited to be kind of part of the solution. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a bigger solution that technology is starting to look at, which is kind of the next thing I want to talk about is the industry of materials in general, materials being papers, plastics, glass, clothing, building materials, all of that is a huge industry. And it's a big deal for waste as well as greenhouse gas emissions from production to transportation to end of life. So I'm curious to what extent you think sustainability will be pursued in this very wide industry and in what places that will come in the most? production, use and reuse or recycling, and end of life of actually disposing of this. Where are those sustainability measures actually going to come in? Or are they going to be coming in at all? 
Yeah, I mean, I think kind of with where sustainability is headed, I think we're all moving in the right direction. And I'm glad you kind of put use and reuse into your question, because we certainly are a recycling focused company, but recycling isn't, you know, the be all end all. And I don't think any of us would say that. I think the reason we talk about recycle, reduce, reuse is because reducing and reusing is just as critical as recycling. When I see people that use, they buy a plastic bottle or a case of plastic water bottles and, you know, drink out of it and then claim it's all good because they're recycling. Well, that's great, but that would actually be better if you were just using, you know, an Nalgene or some other reusable bottle versus um, just relying on recycling to manage the waste. We're heading in the right direction and, you know, technology is only going to hopefully continue to chip away at the problem that we face with just the amount of material that is not being managed properly. As we develop the capability to digitize scrap objects in recycling facilities, there are a lot of applications that open up. You know, the two that are deployed today that we've talked about are robotic sorting and then the descriptive and diagnostic analytics that are available through the standalone sensors. You know, as these sensors become distributed throughout recycling facilities, we're helping them become more data-driven to reduce costs and increase revenue. Through this process, they're transitioning from these centralized material hubs to um, information hubs. And so data capture in these recycling facilities can also influence the design of new facilities, as in the case with secondary sortation that I mentioned. And then we're also seeing the growth and the diversity of data sources in the material stream itself. So there are emerging technologies within packaging that can be used to track their provenance across the supply chain, you know, everything from digital watermarks um, and tracer molecules. And with this host of data, then there's this potential to transition to more predictive analysis and helping to forecast the supply of material within the recycling stream and analyze materials maybe across an entire enterprise or an entire geography. I guess as extended producer responsibility schemes emerge or um, mature as they have already developed in some places, we can help with our technology to satisfy the demand for reporting recovery rates with the sensors that are growing um, in the fleet of MRFs or recycling facilities globally. So it's a lot of data. It's that sensors and bringing in the information, recording it and learning from it is the most important thing that we can continue to focus on going forward. Yeah, I think I think that's it. It's a succinct summary. Um, one of my colleagues in the past has said, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure. And I think that's absolutely true, not just in recycling, but pretty much across the board. But that capability certainly has been lacking in recycling. And so we're, we're hoping to help bridge that gap. That's a very good adage, I guess. It's going to be used definitely in things more than recycling. Energy as well, even just electricity systems, we have to be able to figure out what's going where in order to make that system better. So I think that's most of the kind of longer questions that I actually had for you. I just have a couple of quick ones that I want you to answer as fast as you can. Uh Uh-oh, okay. Okay, the first one is climate mitigation or adaptation? Adaptation. When I think of the really big problems we face, I think it's daunting to look at these big problems just in terms of, you know, completely wiping them out altogether. But like, how do we take the tools we have and try to chip away at these problems, you know, versus throwing up your hands in defeat because it's too big of a problem to solve? Adaptation is a path to mitigation. Okay, that yeah, that's a great answer. So I really like that answer. (laughs) (laughs) My second question is reducing emissions like AMP is doing by reducing the workload and increasing efficiency of these recycling facilities or using carbon capture facilities like direct air capture, taking carbon out of the air, or even things like planting trees. 
probably reducing just because that's kind of where we're more involved um, with our technology. But I think there's probably a role that both could play. Not, not could, but should. <laughs> Both of those roles should be implemented, but I think the reduction is where we should focus on primarily. In the best case scenario, we could just apply these wholesale solutions, but we kind of have to meet the problem where we're at right now and just kind of start tackling it with the tools that we have today. Would you say research into these technologies or the actual implementation, making sure that they work and putting them into the facilities right now? Both. (laughs) Well, I I say both because I think we are doing both. I mean, I think there's inevitably a period of development and a process of implementing and getting everything working before you can really, you know, show the impact. But I think what's cool about what we're doing is this technology is in these facilities today. But we have a continuous cycle of innovation and we're constantly trying to make it better, develop new AI applications that will bring more benefits and, you know, more efficiencies to the industry. So I get, I I don't know, I can't pick. They're both important. (laughs) Yeah, that's completely fair. A lot of people pick both and it's always a good answer to see how you justified it, which is perfect. My next question is, rate the importance of individual action, being conscious of what you're throwing out and what you're recycling in the case of AMP, and just being aware of what you're buying. Your clothes, where are those coming from? Your food, where is that coming from? All of that. How important is that from 1 to 10, 10 being the highest? Honestly, I would still say it's a 10, even though I'll caveat that by saying it's very much just one part of the picture. I, I don't think that it is on the shoulders of consumers alone to fix this problem, but we all have a role to play. People that aren't conscious of kind of how they're disposing of their they use or what they're buying in the store. We're not going to get anywhere without people stepping up, but we need brands to do it too. Part of the reason brands are offering more sustainable packaging is because it's what consumers demand. So, you know, we need to keep asking for those options if that's important to us. And hopefully it's important to a lot of us and hopefully brands will continue to be responsive. I guess it's just, I look at it very much as, and hopefully others do too, as a chain of collaboration where everyone has to kind of be pulling their weight in order for us to make a difference. It's not all consumers that are responsible for the problem by any means, but I rate it a 10 because we're not making responsible choices. There's no domino effect for others in the value chain to to react to how we're behaving. I like that value chain because it's a good visualization if we are one part of it, even if consumers are just a small part. If that link isn't there, then there is no value chain. There is no path towards making these systems more sustainable. This is my last question. With everything that you're seeing in the recycling industry and just kind of the world in general, with everything that's moving quickly with the development of AI, do you think that we can decarbonize all of these systems, reduce cost, raise efficiency, and ultimately reduce carbon emissions so that we can prevent the worst effects of climate change and achieve carbon neutrality by 2050? That's that's a that's a big question to end with. I I mean, I kind of go back to the same thematic or point I made with the last question, where I think that we are still capable of reversing the course we're on. I don't think that, like I said, recycling is certainly an important part of the equation, but there's a lot of other players across industries that have to step up in a lot of ways for us to get there. So 
as with any big problem, though, I think we just have to we just have to get started. And I hope that that's what we're doing at AMP. And I know if the 150 or so people that work at my company are you know, representative of the passion and commitment and desire for change that hopefully companies across industries have, I do think it is possible, but it's not going to be easy. Again, all you can do is kind of get started. I definitely agree. And it's good to see a company like AMP. I mean, all of these companies that I've been asking these questions to are all on that path to getting started, getting something done on this problem, which is great to see. It's really encouraging and it's really inspiring to see the work being done. So thank you and thank you to AMP for doing all of this stuff. Well, thank you. And I know we appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit more about what we are doing and just get the word out. So thank you for the opportunity to to chat with you today. It's been a pleasure having you on. Is there anywhere that people can find you and AMP if they want to learn a bit more about this? Visit us on amprobotics.com. We also have a number of roles open, um, I think 30 to 40 across the company. So hiring pretty aggressively if anyone is interested in a new career opportunity and joining us, amprobotics.com slash careers. We're on social media, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Instagram as well, just, you know, at Amprobotics. So lots of places that you can find us. Thanks for coming on, Carling. It's been an absolute pleasure to learn about this and learn about your systems at AMP. So thanks for sharing that with me. Thanks again for having me, Avery. Well, thanks for listening all the way through. I found this conversation very insightful, and I know it's a bit longer, but I really couldn't find any part of this conversation that I can trim down any more than I did. Recycling is essential to limiting waste and reducing energy use through materials production. Like Carling said, it is truly the perfect industry to implement AI and robotics in. I'll link to both of the podcast episodes I mentioned, along with all of the various ways you can connect with AMP if you want to learn more about recycling and the use of robotics in recycling. Again, thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the show over social media, leaving reviews, and just coming back every week. Remember that if this is something that you want other people to hear about, to share it with just one person close to you and make sure they give it a try. We always respond to all of the social media linked in the show notes, so don't hesitate to reach out. Stay innovative. I'll see you next week.